This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, Southern University of New Orleans is under scrutiny for rescinding scholarships for some students without advance warning, leading to unexpected bills for cash-strapped families. The Orleans Parish Communications District, which runs the 911 and 311 systems, is hoping for a costly upgrade and may be bypassing the public bid process to do so. A federal judge ruled on Monday that the city of New Orleans must move forward with a new jail facility known as Phase 3, which will be used to house detainees with serious mental illness and medical conditions. Also in criminal justice, prisoners over 70 are eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. We'll find out how the rollout is going so far. And for the younger students, New Orleans public schools will reopen again this Monday as cases are on the decline in the city. Meanwhile, mobile COVID-19 testing at schools has been halted. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, contributing reporter Madeline Arufo. Hi, Madeline. Hi. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen is along with us. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And the Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Good morning. We have a big week here, big news week. Madeline, we're going to kick off with you. Some students who were offered scholarships at Southern University of New Orleans have described kind of a nightmare scenario under which they've accumulated mountains of debt as their scholarships have unexpectedly vanished. How many SUNO students has this happened to that you know of? So right now we're aware of five students that that happened to. What did they tell you? What's going on? So basically they had entered SUNO under the impression that they would be receiving scholarships of various amounts sometimes, but mainly the issues are with the the university fellows scholarship, which was supposed to be for a full ride, including meals, housing, etc. And then At the beginning of the year, after they had already moved in, they experienced various problems with either the processing of the scholarship or just delays in receiving the amount of money that they had been promised in their accounts. And of course, immediately families began calling the school and trying to get this sorted out. And they were told all sorts of different things like maybe there was a mix up with someone's name or there was a piece of information missing. Um, or in, in one main case, um, you know, an ACT score was actually too low for the student to qualify for the full amount of the scholarship. And the issue here was that they were not informed of these problems. If there was a qualification issue, they weren't informed of these problems until very much late in the semester. And so you can imagine the stress that these students were under when they believed that everything was sorted out and that they were going to get this scholarship. And then midway through the semester, they're finding out, oh, no, you owe the school $5,000 or more. Um, so it, it's it's been quite a nightmare, as you said, for these families. Yeah, you, you go into detail about that particular student. Um, what is the school saying about this? Well, the school didn't deny that there had been problems with with any of the student scholarships that we brought to their attention. We reached out to 
the interim vice chancellor for student affairs, Melva Williams, and asked her about this. And she said that she was very sorry that the student hadn't in fact qualified for the scholarship that she had been offered. In, in that case, the family did decide to withdraw their daughter from the school and she's now transferred to a different institution because of just the stress that they've experienced over the past semester. And as a matter of fact, the issue still wasn't resolved for them until um, recently, until a few weeks ago. And until this story broke, right? It Didn't the story sort of push, push the resolution? Yeah, that's right. Um, the, the school told us that they had begun an um, internal audit into these problems. And that started back in um, early December, around the time, slightly after the time, I started a public records inquiry asking about scholarship problems with the school. To me, that's the, a very curious part of this story, uh, because in all of these cases that we're aware of, um, these students or their parents, you know, particularly the one family that the story kind of really focused on, they were in basically constant correspondence with one administrator at Suno or another for several months. And the vice chancellor uh, that we spoke to tells us that, you know, this is unfortunate, but but we really weren't aware of this until uh, the lens brought it to our attention in December. So, but in many cases, you know, we've seen the emails, we've seen the correspondence happening between these families and, and the university. So it strikes me as a little strange that they claim not to have been aware of it until our reporting brought it to their attention. And there's been some turnover in the scholarship or the admissions office. Are they linking some of it to, to miscommunication and lapsing of, of communication from one change to the other? Yeah, so over the summer, um, the previous director of admissions, Mr. Meadows, passed away actually due to COVID-19. Mm. So there was about a month where there was an interim um, admissions director, and then they eventually hired a new admissions director, Jacoby Tubbs. And at least according to the recruiters that we spoke to at Suno, that kind of either exacerbated um, or in some cases started the problems that these students were experiencing because he had wanted all of the students who had been offered scholarships previously, you know, families that they'd been in communication with at the end of these students' senior years to kind of recommit to their scholarship acceptances. And it's not entirely clear, but there could have been processing issues related to that. And in any case, recruiters insisted to me that they did not believe that the school actually had access to sufficient funding for these scholarships. And they also told me that they had warned Jacoby Tubbs about this Mm. over the summer and early in the year. Um, And, you know, the school has denied this um, and we don't have any other evidence of misuse of funds or anything like that at this time, but it is kind of a question there if, if there is a, a funding stream issue. Again, we don't know uh, if it is in fact a, a funding issue, but you know, the broader context here is that this is a, this is a university that has had significant financial troubles 
over the past several years in particular. Um, you know, they, they have had to cut their athletic programs. They had to let go of a, a number of faculty. Um, you know, they're currently, I believe, on uh, uh, one of their creditors has placed them on probation due to its financial problems because uh, the accreditor basically, or the accrediting agency basically uh, said, you know, we don't know if this university has, has you know, sufficient funds to continue its, you know, to continue its academic programs going forward. Mm. Um, so again, we don't know if this is related to that, um, if this is a, a, a separate financial issue unrelated to the larger financial issue, or if it's some other type of screw up. The, the outcome of this is right now, they, they, the university told uh, Madeline that, that they are going to be uh, conducting an audit on this particular scholarship problem. What exactly is it that they told you about the scope and, and the timeline on that audit? Well, unfortunately, not a lot. Really, the only information that they provided to us was the date that it began, which was December 7th. Significantly, that's the day before the main student in my article received her, I guess, official rescinding of her scholarship letter. And I asked them how long they expected the audit to be going on and what exactly that would entail. And the only information they gave to me was that it's under the control of some university official and that there was there was no other information provided, basically. You said earlier that you found five students. Do you think it's possible that there are more than that? I think it's very likely that there are more than that um, because, again, the correspondence that I've had with the school's recruiters, uh, they had mentioned that, that they had received... Uh, or that they were aware of 46 different students that had emailed the school about this. And of course, some of those processing errors could have been the fault of the student. Some of them probably were not the fault of the student. But right now, it's it's unclear how widespread exactly this is. Four of those five students were from this academic year alone. It's going to be something to, to watch out for and we're definitely, definitely going to have to keep up with them on the progress of this audit. Yeah, and just quickly to, to just wrap this up, I'm just curious about this one young woman in particular and maybe the other students, if you know, she transferred. Um, do, do they wipe clean their, their bills or are they left with this bill owed that they need to pay off? They, they finally did wipe it clean um, literally the day after we interviewed Melva Williams um, for this particular student. But again, that was after months of the family reaching out to the school about this. Um, and at one point also discussing it with an attorney to see what their options would be. And it's still unclear if that's the, if that's the case for the other students as well. Wow, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is. Thanks for that story, Madeline. It's a really great story. You're welcome. All right, Michael, complicated story about the 911 and 311 communication district, City of New Orleans. They're pursuing new state-of-the-art law enforcement data sharing software. What is this software? It sounds pretty high-tech. That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there wasn't a lot simple about this story. Um, but at, at kind of the broadest level, what this software does, um, it's a records management system, right? So the, the police, they have extensive, extensive records. 
including arrests. Um, you know, every time they interact with a member of the public, they're supposed to fill out something called an incident report, right? So all of those. The, the first part of this is just a new updated way to store that. Um, it's a cloud-based service versus a server-based um, service. So that's the first part. But, but then the second part is where this kind of gets a little bit more interesting. Um, the second part is an analytics software that helps kind of make sense of all that massive data. So what an analysis tool like this does is it can sift through all that information and kind of pull out insights and, and make connections through, through that. Now, the reason why I'm kind of talking in pretty broad analytic terms is that the software is very customizable. And, and at least from the, the kind of promotional materials put out by the company, this, this um, Swedish company called Hexagon, it really stresses that it, it can be adjusted to whatever you know the user wants. You can make different dashboards and different um, analytic tools, and you can customize those to based off whatever insights you're trying to get. And from the perspective of a customer, if you're you know the NOPD or or you know whoever is using the software, that's pretty great. From a public accountability transparency standpoint. New Orleans, unlike other cities, we don't have anything like a, a privacy office. We don't have a surveillance regulatory office um, or anything like that. So the main way we watch out for this kind of stuff is through um, the procurement process. In this case, it seems like the analytic tools kind of get more refined and really built up after the purchase. So exactly how this tool is going to be used, exactly what powers it's going to give to the NOPD, um, it's still a little bit unclear. Okay, I want to get to the to the um, privacy issues in a second. But first thing that when my eyebrows went up was just about the cloud based format. Uh, is that does that make it safer against hacking potentially? That's definitely one argument for it. I think that you know the argument that um, and we'll also get into this. But talking to the um, director of the Orleans um, the Orleans Parish Communications District, which is trying to purchase this equipment on behalf of the NOPD. Um, but one of the kind of main talking points here is that, you know, a system like this, um, historically cities have purchased software and purchased actual physical servers to in New Orleans to hold all this data. Now, there's a lot more software these days that instead of buying it outright, instead of having to buy your own, you know, storage for it, um, you, you sign on to it as a service. So unlike our current records management system, which we actually own and which we actually store all of that data locally, um, this is a service that we pay annual subscription fees for. Um, they keep all that data stored physically, you know, wherever their storage facilities are. I believe they're all located in the U.S., um, but then we access that remotely through, through the cloud. And now what are the privacy issues that might be coming up with the, with the use of this? Right. I mean, I think there's a there's a few concerns there. I talked to organizers with um, local uh, advocacy group Ion Surveillance, who is kind of the central local body that, that tries to keep track of this stuff, track of surveillance technology. And, and I think what really gave them initial pause is, is how kind of opaque um, some of this software is and, and, and how it can be used. Um, I think that there are definitely concerns about how data will be shared in between law enforcement agencies. So the service, if, it's, if the city does end up purchasing the software, it will be primarily used by the NOPD. However, it will be available 
to any law enforcement agency in the parish. Why that gives pause to some advocates is that there are, you know, certain surveillance provisions that um, certain surveillance restrictions that were recently passed that apply to the NOPD, but don't necessarily apply to other police departments in the city. So think about university police departments or the levy district police department or the housing authority of New Orleans has its own police department. So suddenly these very powerful analytic tools and, and all of this NOPD data will now be available to all these smaller police departments that aren't necessarily under a federal consent decree and, and have all mm. those activities watched or have these regulations passed by the city council. So the way that that data is utilized by some of these other um, you know, secondary police departments, I think, is of some concern. And this is something we just recently saw, right, Michael? And in another example, the NOPD had been and the city had been saying for years that they don't use facial recognition software. And, and what that turned out to mean was that they didn't use their own facial recognition software. They didn't have their own. They were asking federal and state partners to perform facial recognition for them. So any any situation where there's uh, you know there, where there's an interdepartmental sharing of data, these other departments could be performing you know the sort of intelligence and, and analysis on on this data uh, and these records that the NOPD would be unable to because of city regulations or the federal consent decree or other things. I think that's a lot of the privacy concern. I think another I think another privacy concern, and Michael, maybe you can talk about this a little bit, is just the city's past experience with this sort of uh, uh, data analysis software like we had for example with Palantir a few years back under the under the Landrieu administration. Yeah, yeah. to anyone who, who doesn't know the Palantir history here, Palantir it's a, a CIA funded um, tech company that produces a lot of law enforcement software and, and for a while um, the, the city was using a, a form of, you know, some there's some argument whether it's a technically predictive policing, but but it was an analytic tool that looked through NOPD data, city data, to try and figure out who was like most likely to, to be involved in a future gun crime. And that kind of went fairly unnoticed. I mean, there's also argument about whether, you know, the city was intentionally keeping it a secret or whether people just didn't notice it was happening. Um, but I think from, you know, a, a privacy advocate's perspective, um, it was something that was kept from the public that we didn't know what, you know, was going on. And I want to kind of draw a line to a broader, I think, surveillance concern that, that connects Palantir with what we're looking at now. And that's that there's data that the police and that the city have always collected for decades. And, and it's something that, you know, we as a society have agreed that we'll hand over to the city and the police so that, you know, our government can function in a certain way. However, using that data and compiling that data and using that data to, to try and make conclusions about individual people, it, it was difficult to try and get all that together because these de databases were so massive and it would have just taken a lot of man hours to, to go through all of those pieces of paper. But now it's changing because you have software like Palantir, like this powerful software we're adding now, that can make use of this data in ways that we've never been able to before. So data collection that the government has always participated in and has never necessarily posed a surveillance um, concern in the past are now being used in new ways and utilized, you know, by very, very powerful, you know, analytic artificial intelligence backed software, you know, to make new conclusions. And, and so mm. where that goes from here, I think that there's absolutely, you know, concern among the advocates. But, but so I would add that that a lot of the concern comes from 
what is unknown. And this, and part of the reason that a lot of this is unknown, we didn't even know about any of this until they were all ready to make this purchase with this particular contractor. And part of the reason that it's unknown, as was the case with Palantir, is that it didn't go through the normal sort of procurement channels. That happened with Palantir because Palantir, if I remember correctly, was, it was a service that was provided for free. And it didn't go through the normal procurement channels in this case because OPCD, the Orleans Parish Communication District, is making the purchase essentially on the city's behalf, which is another issue with this uh, you know, particular purchase. This is kind of a, a strange way that they, they've managed to do this, but like we talked about, this software is primarily for the NOPD. Um, now, without getting into kind of all the details of, of state and local law, I'll say that if the NOPD had purchased this directly, if the city and the NOPD had gone out and tried to buy this software, they would have been required to go through a competitive selection process, right? Go through that public process where you post, um, you know, we're looking for X services, send us proposals or whatever it might be. However, the, the software is being procured by a, a semi-independent state-created agency called the Orleans Parish Communications District. So the Orleans Parish Communications District, or OPCD, um, runs the city's 911 and 311 systems. And it's, it, it's a state-created agency, so it's not beholden to, that, to, to the city law that would have required the NOPD to go through that competitive selection process. So OPCD has been able to go through this whole process you know, behind the scenes, um, they did, you know, they did do an actual search, but it was informal. It wasn't public. Um, and, you know, how they made this determination ultimately is, you know, not known to us. So OPCD plans to purchase this and pay the upfront initial $2.2 million installation cost. After that, the $500,000 annual maintenance charge will be paid for by the NOPD. So the big question now is how the city and the NOPD are going to enter a maintenance contract with this company without going through a competitive selection process. We weren't able to get answers to that, but we talked to one um, political science professor at Dillard University who said that, you know, he didn't see a way that the city could get around a, a competitive selection process for the maintenance contract. Now that would open up a really weird scenario where we install this new system, the city goes through a competitive selection process and, and somehow picks a different contractor. So. I, it's going to be very strange to see how the city tries to enter this contract, um, how they're going to do that. So um, obviously we'll, we'll keep our eye on it. I have a theory as to how that's going to happen to sort of get around the law yet again, which is rather than entering into a purchasing contract, the city would be likely to enter into a cooperative endeavor agreement with OPCD. The city pays OPCD the $500,000 a year and OPCD pays the company. Okay. And other city news, there is an opening because of Jason Williams' uh, election win as DA. He's our new DA, and that leaves a city council vacancy. What's happening with that appointment? Late, later today, um, it's Thursday today, the city council is um, getting together. And during its meeting today, it will appoint um, that seventh uh, council member to take over Jason Williams' seat. So, so the two candidates that the city council are considering to fill this seat are, are Carrie Grant and uh, Donna Glapion. Um, and so one of those two people, again, by the time this podcast comes out, will likely be um, sitting on the city council. Donna Glapion, I'm not, I'm not personally as familiar with. She was a Zulu queen a few years ago, and she is a business, a local business owner. 
it appears that Cary Grant has withdrawn his name from consideration. I have this letter to the city council. Since it has become clear that I do not have the support of a majority of the city council, I am withdrawing my name from consideration for the position of council at large division two. So it seems likely to be uh, Donna Glapian then. Yep, that, that does seem to be the case. I think on the Donna Glapian motion, all six sitting council members had signed on. And then for the Grant motion, um, there were two city council members that didn't sign on to that motion. So I guess that's kind of how this got decided. Hmm. Okay, thanks, Michael. Thank you. And a quick update on this story. The New Orleans City Council on Thursday did appoint Donna Glapian as interim councilwoman, taking over the at-large seat vacated by Jason Williams. Glapian is program manager for the nonprofit No Kid Hungry Louisiana, a former queen of the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, business owner, and a member of the Orleans Parish Democratic Executive Committee. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are contributing reporter Madeline Arufo, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, education reporter Marta Jusen, and the Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. If you'd like the inside scoop on what stories we're pursuing, what events and initiatives are coming up, and to learn more about the people who report at The Lens, subscribe today to our newsletter at thelensnola.org newsletters. Thank you. Okay, Nick, so we'll turn to you in criminal justice A major update this week on a controversial new jail facility from a high court about phase three. What what happened? What happened was sort of what what we expected to happen, which was that a federal judge uh, adopted a recommendation of a magistrate judge that said that the city needs to move forward with building a new jail facility uh, known as phase three. It's an 89 bed facility that's uh, intended to house uh, detainees in the jail with acute mental illness. Um, so this has been an ongoing legal battle and this is sort of the, the latest and kind of remains to be seen how final this decision will be. Um, there's some question whether the city will appeal. Okay, that, that's a question I had if you think they'll appeal. But first, um, do they use outside counsel to represent them in this or do they represent their own interests? Um, so the city attorney's office argued uh, uh, for most of it, and they also, I think, contracted with with outside counsel. Okay. Do you think there'll be an appeal? There's some people advocating for it. Yeah. So, so um, there a lot of local criminal justice reform organizations have really mobilized around this um, uh, to try and get the building of this facility stopped, and um, have kind of pinned their hopes to this legal challenge. Um, so yeah, they are they are very much encouraging the city to to appeal. I don't know what this what the city is currently thinking um, around that. Right now, they have indicated that they're continuing building the facility already. So they are, are about seventy five percent done with the design work and are continuing to pay the architect to to move forward in that process. Um, if they wanted to try and stop now that the the order has been uh, issued, they would need to, to file a, a motion to stay that order, which it seems unlikely that the, the uh, federal judge would grant given the, the history of the litigation, the recent history of the litigation. So I don't know. And, you know, an appeal could take a long time. And 
if, if they're continuing to build this facility um, while, you know, the appellate court is, is hearing their arguments, I, I, don't, I don't know what that would look like. Yeah, not to mention the bitter pill of having to spend this money right now when, when they're also under um, constraints with budgets. That is a point of debate um, because the city has argued that, you know, it only has, so, so a, at least a significant portion of this is going to be covered by FEMA. FEMA, FEMA reimbursement money related to Hurricane Katrina that has still been, you know, allocated. The city claims that that, that is only $36 million of the $51 million cost to build the facility. But uh, part of the arguments here have, have been that, that, in fact, there, there is, you know, additional FEMA money available that was allocated for the jail and related projects that was later put into a larger pool of criminal justice related projects. Uh, and the other sides in this basically made the argument that though you may not want to spend this additional $15 million on a jail project, you do, in fact, have that money. So if that is the case, then it really doesn't have an impact on the city's operating budget. I okay. mean, basically, all of the all of the financial questions in this uh, litigation are, are disputed. The city says that it's going to cost an additional nine million dollars a year in operating costs for them to for them to staff and manage this new facility. Um, the other parties in the litigation have said that you know currently the city recently renovated a different facility known as the temporary detention center to to temporarily um, house these detainees with with acute mental illness, and they are currently staffing that ostensibly. So the other parties in litigation have said, you know, look, you're already doing this. All you have to do is move move those staff members over into this new facility, and it's not going to be a significant increase. All right. Meanwhile. Uh, Governor John Bell Edwards has said that prisoners over 70 are eligible for this latest round of vaccine. How are vaccinations coming along and are any prisoners over 70 receiving it yet? Yeah, so um, the Department of Corrections said this week that that they had completed uh, the first round of vaccinations for every prisoner over 70 uh, years old who wanted one. And they said that that was about 80% of the total. So there are, I think, roughly 470 um, prisoners over the age of 70 in the Department of Corrections. So 80% of those have, have gotten their, their first round of vaccine. That's a high percentage. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it sounds like that they wanted them, so... So I would say that the uh, the other part of this is that they're starting to take the vaccines to uh, to vaccinate over 70 uh, inmates at local detention facilities. But that we know of only those inmates who are who are state convicted inmates who are being held at local detention facilities. The open the big open question is the is the likely well, more than likely, definitely large, much larger population of inmates throughout the state uh, who might be eligible under the current guidelines who are pre-trial detainees uh, under the jurisdiction of local parish sheriffs. Do we know anything more on that, Nick? No, I haven't heard anything. I've been putting in requests to the the, um, Sheriff's Association to see if they can find anything, and the Department of Health has, has also pointed me in that direction. So, no, that's an open question. And I would say, I mean, I, I wonder how many um, pretrial detainees over the age of 70 there are. I think that a lot of the state prisoners, obviously, 
have been arrested younger, you know, when, when they were much younger and then, and then gotten old in jail or in prison. So I'm not, I'm not sure on the numbers and I'm not sure um, on how, how they're um, navigating that. Oh, yes. I, I think it's very possible that, uh, possible if not probable, that it's a lower number than the number who are in state prisons. I would imagine that it's, that it's at least likely that number is higher than the number of over 70 convicts who are being held in local facilities. Yeah, I think that's, that's certainly possible. Do you have any data on how many guards and staff at these facilities have received the vaccine? Yeah, so the Department of Corrections said that they have vaccinated 608 healthcare workers and frontline staff that work in state prisons. So healthcare workers, obviously, you know, uh, nurses and doctors in the prisons, and then frontline staff. I, a spokesperson said basically it was anyone who would who would come into contact with prisoners who have, have tested positive. So if they're transporting uh, prisoners or if they are you know, assigned to certain housing wards that, that are specifically for uh, uh, prisoners with COVID-19. So, so, yeah, about 600. Excellent. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thank you. Marta, in schools, uh, schools are reopening Monday for, for the littles, but district has meanwhile said that they're going to halt the mobile testing of COVID-19. Some schools are reopening. Which ones and why? Yeah, so we are, like they did in the fall, the district is reopening to its youngest students. So uh, kindergarten through fourth grade students are going to be able to go back five days a week in-person learning. Uh, Middle schoolers can also go back, but they're probably more likely to be on hybrid models. Um, What schools are doing is they're going back to the models they were in before winter break. Okay. And why are they saying now that it's okay? District officials said they were comfortable to reopen. Um, First of all, they want to prioritize in-person learning. That's something they've been doing all year. And with um, COVID-19 cases and COVID-19 test positivity rates dropping over the last two weeks, they've they've felt comfortable to move students back into schools. Okay. What are teachers saying about it, if anything? Uh, There's a lot of concern from the teachers' union. They are not comfortable with it. They uh, think the district is not being clear about their metrics or their thresholds that they've set for allowing students back into schools. And the district has said that they would reevaluate those numbers, but they have not published anything specific. Uh, We had one conversation last week when they announced they were going to stay closed for another week. Del Hassel, a reporter from NOLA.com, just asked, okay, well, theoretically, if cases are over 100 a day, could students go back in school? And their answer was just theoretically yes. So they haven't they haven't released hard numbers like they had done in the fall. Okay, and what are they saying about the older kids? Um, so high schoolers are going to be able to go back after Mardi Gras break. Hopefully that gives us, you know, kind of a buffer to make sure that everything is going okay. And, you know, hopefully we're not seeing too much spread over the holiday. That's, that's definitely another concern, both I think from families and from teachers as well. Uh, because we, ha- you know, did see that big spike in early January after the holidays. Uh, but to that question superintendent lewis said you know we all did thanksgiving break and we were able to go back after that percent positivity and the decision to allow kids back in school would go hand in hand with testing meanwhile mobile testing has been halted at schools what happened there yeah so the district um was working on having this mobile testing program through a partnership with the department of health Uh, it turns out they were using a test from the company called curative 
And that test had, um, the CDC had issued a warning about that test a few weeks back saying that it had the potential to give false negatives. And so uh, we've seen other, you know, LA County, Los Angeles County stopped using this test. Other school districts around the country have stopped using the test. So I think, you know, that's a, it's an unfortunate hit to the district because that was, you know, that was going to be an advance for them. And and as far as technology and surveillance and ability to, you know, just keep an eye, a close eye on things. Right. Yeah. And in particular, because, you know, and one, one of the things that has driven me crazy about the, the weekly data reports about cases in Orleans Parish School, let me just add that, that they're providing more information than many, if not all other districts in the state about cases. But all we know from week to week is if the number of cases are going up or down. And, and that really doesn't mean a whole lot if you don't know how many tests are being taken. Hmm. So by, by instituting mobile testing at schools, that got them a closer to something that would resemble, you know, sort of, a, sort of on-site testing throughout the district um, had it been expanded further which would have meant that they would have known if there was adequate testing for their population of, you know, 50,000 or so between teachers and students and staff. But now we're farther away from knowing that again. There's been stories nationally about mental health and older students, and there's been a spike in, in suicides in older kids, and that there's concern that being away from school for such a long time is taking a huge mental health toll. Yeah, I think that is uh, 100% a concern here, too. I, I don't know if it's to the same degree as, say, um, Clark County, where Las Vegas is, and that district actually moved to reopen their high schools quickly because they they were seeing such an increase um, in suicides. But I do know that mental health is a, a priority of the district. That's something that they work to have extra funding for. Um, they're trying to push out extra support uh, during the pandemic, because you know, not only do we have students who are living with this pandemic, we know that there are other issues in our community, and as well as you know, just the effects from uh, several years of uh, traumatic storms and and other prevalent issues. And uh, you know, I, I do wonder if that was part of the decision to allow some high school small group you know, small group in-person classes to begin next week uh, because they are, they are allowing small groups at certain high schools with certain special populations. Could be. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Okay, what a huge week. Thank you all for all of your reporting this week. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, Carolyn. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, contributing reporter Madeline Arufo, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, education reporter Marta Jusen, and editor of The Lens, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.